0: Uh, we're going to do a quick review, and just because you may be new here, maybe you weren't here last week, just to give you a little uh, background. Uh, The occasion for John's writing uh, was that he sought to give assurance to the early church uh, that was being confused by false teachers. Uh, He wanted them to experience the fullness of joy uh, that they have in Christ and not to be robbed of it from the teachers that had come in to speak. There are three kind of teachings that you see as you walk through this text that you'll see him combat. One is doctrinally the false teachers like uh, took uh, the work of Christ, the person and work of Christ and they were dismissing uh, some of the basic tenets of the faith like Jesus actually walked among us. He was actually human. Morally, they minimize the seriousness of sin, which today we're going to see that we're going to see that kind of unpacked where they're kind of kind of redefining sin or they don't think of sin as in in the way that the scripture presents it. And the third thing we saw, we see as we read through is socially they fail because of their spiritual pride and their spiritual pride resulted in a lack of brotherly love. They just uh, they left and they left because they did not love the body. What was the purpose of John's writing then it was to promote joy like we we want you to understand and grasp joy. It was to prevent the children of God from like committing sin. It was to protect them from the false teachers and it was to provide assurance of the salvation of the child of God. All those things are there. I just want to give you that as we kind of move forward so you can think about that as we look at the whole structure of this text. So John is going to proclaim the gospel message. He's going to present Jesus as the life, the eternal life that we have hope in. And so it's a beautiful picture uh, for us to see. Now, one of the things I want you to look at in first John, chapter one, verses three and four, just to glance at. So to get your mind kind of wrapped around uh, his picture of seeing fellowship with God, the father and the son and how we enter into that. Uh, We see that in first John one, three and four. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Last week, we talked about fellowship. And this week, we're saying, what are the conditions or what hinders fellowship? How do we get into fellowship and stay in fellowship? What does it mean to walk in fellowship With the Lord. And so what we would say is the hindrance to fellowship, as you look throughout Scripture, is sin. I mean, that is what hinders fellowship. The Bible teaches this about sin. Scripture says we are conceived in sin. It tells us that by Adam's sin the whole human race was plunged into sin. The scripture also so we inherited sin, and then it also tells us that we are by nature sinners and by choice. And so not only do we inherit sin, we are by nature sinners and we sin. We choose to sin. And so we say, what does that do? It causes a break in fellowship with God. We are born in a broken with a broken relationship with God. And so it's very important, I think, that we understand that because the only way to restore fellowship then is to deal with sin. How does the scripture deal with sin? That's the big question. How is that going to be addressed? Now, what we know is by trusting in Christ alone and by his blood, trusting in what he did and accomplished, that's what reconciles us to God and to one another. So I, I'm going to talk to you just for a moment, just as you think about it. Like if you were to say, OK, everyone's a sinner, then how, how would you lay that out? What does that look like? I think there's two classes of sinners, and that's something uh, if you've read Tim Keller much, he'll talk about it. There's the irreligious Sinner. And there's the religious center, two classes The like irreligious center, you might say, is the person who says, I'm going to throw off all the rules. They just throw them off. They go and live their life like the prodigal son did. They just like run in absolute rebellion against the things of God. They spend their money and time on drunkenness, sex, foolishness, all forms of pleasure. They just like gobble up what the world says. They just like they're they're wild in their rebellion. That's a prodigal kind of son. They believe in throwing off all the rules that they'll find joy and happiness. That's a form of salvation. They're going to to experience life to its fullest by throwing off all the rules. Then you have the religious sinner. It's a person who follows the rules to get what they want. They are the type of people that think that through doing everything right, they gain acceptance with God. They believe that these things in in these things, they have eternal life. They can be very judgmental. And for them, sins like gossiping might be permissible. But as long as they're not doing the big things right, they'll choose their sins, you know, Uh, making everything in their life centered around them. It's all about me. Everywhere I go, it's about me. It's my life. Oh, it's me. It's me. It's me. That's okay In that kind of form. They think so highly of their opinion, but that anyone who disagrees is stupid and unwise and lacks respect. It's this picture of the irreligious center and the religious center that helps you frame to say, "Okay, what do I lean most to? If I were to look over my life, where would I fit? Do I think that salvation comes through just breaking all the rules and living in rebellion or keeping all the rules and still living in rebellion against God? We talked about this some time ago, but the the, the prodigal son's a beautiful story of that. You have the wild younger brother who runs in rebellion, the older brother who stayed home. And the real the real deal was when you get down to the end of it, the younger brother repents and he's drawn into the father's pleasure and experience that. And the older brother sits outside angry. You see, the older brother had a sin. It was the sin of the Pharisee. That's what that whole story's about, right? The rebels and the Pharisees and the Pharisees going can't stand that younger brother. It's, it's a struggle for us because I think we can either be on an extreme or we can fit somewhere in the middle. And depending on the day, we find ourselves somewhere there. I think that's why you see like when we think of sinners in general or look at the two series of sinners, you might say the prodigal son, his wildlife ends up in a state of brokenness. The self righteous person who kept all the rules ends up lonely because they don't need Jesus and they don't like anyone. It's very important we see that. Because when we're looking at this text this morning, I think it's very important that we say, what is the answer to fellowship with God? Is fellowship with God found in living a wild life or living a religious life? Guess what? It's not found in either one of those. That is not how fellowship is presented in first John. So we're going to look at that today and hopefully you will see what true fellowship, how it's truly found. What are the conditions to fellowship with God? How can we enter in and how should one who gets it live? That's kind of what you would look at this morning as you're thinking about it. First John chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no Darkness at all. John shares the message that he received from Jesus. God is light. We stop here just for a moment and say we've been looking at the sun. Now we're looking at the father and saying he is light. Now, how would you define Light. I mean that's a very important thing when you're looking at this text because this hinges like this is kind of one of those things where you say, depending on how we define that, is how we like would understand this passage. So if you want to hold your spot there and go to John chapter 1 and verse 4. In John 1, 4. In him speaking of Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. What do we learn about the light? We learn that life and light are synonymous here. Remember, in the first four verses of 1 John, Jesus was called the word of life or the eternal Life here, Jesus is presented as the light that has come into darkness. It's almost like just to think about life has come into a world of death. So when John says God is light or we could say that God is life, he is saying life is found in him and comes from him. So you can turn back to first John and we'll just start moving through here in just a moment. But I just you can go ahead and move back there. But it says we want to see that because we need to understand that light and life are synonymous as darkness and death would be remember when God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat from the tree, you shall surely die. They're going to be cast out of the garden, out of the presence of God, away from the tree of life. We see light and life synonymous. They're cast away, they're put away from God, out of fellowship with him. Later, when the scripture will speak of hell, people will be cast out into outer darkness, separated from the light, separating from the life of God, separated from fellowship with God. They are cast away from that in the new heavens and the new earth. The scripture will speak of this place of light and life. And you'll see there that the sun will be no more because the son of God, the light will be there. It's very important, I think, to see this, the picture of life and light together here as we do, as we're looking at that, we're saying, how do we enter into fellowship? We have to embrace the light. We have to grasp that. Now, in John's gospel, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks or whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Very, it's very important, I think, we're reading 1 John, that we're reading John and we're trying to kind of put together a framework to understand this. The false teachers were saying, and this is very important, the false teachers were saying that had come in, they were saying at this picture, in this point, they were saying that they had been enlightened, they had come to this understanding distinct and separate from Christ, they, 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 were not, they, they were not saying we're embracing the light of the world. Instead, they're embracing this higher understanding that somehow gave them access to God apart from the light of the world. What a dangerous place to be. That's heretical. Sometimes people ask me, are there any other ways to God? Surely there are. That's what they might say and present to us. And I would say, listen, if God is the creator of the world and he made all things... And Jesus is also the creator of the world. And within the Godhead, the plan was that Jesus would come and lay down his life to reconcile uh, these these sinners and rebels to himself. Then he's the only way. He is the only hope for the world. Now, look at verse 6, and we'll just keep moving. You see a series of these conditional clauses, if we say, if you want to, you could underline it in your Bible, "If if we say, if we say, if we say. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, we talked about fellowship. Fellowship is not just like, oh, I came to church today. Afterwards, they decided to have a little meal. I hung out with the church and we had fellowship, whatever that would mean. Like we call it that or whatever. And, uh, and so then you're kind of saying, OK, well, does that mean just hanging out with church people? And then we're in fellowship. Well, I think it's very much like something when we're talking about fellowship here, that it goes beyond that to have fellowship with God is no small thing. If we said earlier, sin separated us from God, then we say, how do we enter back into fellowship with him? We have to say, well, what are the for instance, what are the wages of sin? What did sin cost? Well, the scripture says the wages of sin is death. And so the idea is either you're going to have to die or someone would have to die in your place in order to be for you To be reconciled to God. And that's what we would say. The scripture teaches. Of course, that scripture lays it out for us. To be reconciled to God. Means that you have to trust in Christ. The one who gave his life on the cross for us. So I think it's important that we see that. To to enter into relationship. Comes through Christ and his work for us. No spiritual experience can regain that. John is saying if we have fellowship. Now, he goes on to say, if we have fellowship, but walk in darkness or reject the light, I might say, which is Christ, you lie and do not practice the truth. Those who say this, that's what he's saying. Like there's people coming in and saying, we have fellowship in this way. You are claiming fellowship this way. And the apostle stands up as the witness of Christ. He saw him, experienced him. He was commissioned by him. And he said, here's the light of the world. Here's the hope for eternal life. Here's the way. And if someone says they have it in any other way, they are lying and not walking in the truth. They have not embraced the truth. They're living a lifestyle of rejecting the truth. And the truth is found in Christ and in him alone. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So. The Bible is true. There's only one true and living God who is holy. We are sinners by inheritance, nature and choice. Our sin must be punished. And Jesus came to live the perfect life that we could not live and die the death that we deserved. That's the central message of the scripture. And John is laying that out for us. So how could we reject the light? We can reject the son, our only hope for salvation. We can claim to believe in him. I mean, That's the hard thing about being here in this area. You've traveled around the world in different places or whatever. Not everybody says they're a Christian. You know, like some places you go, they like openly say I'm not a Christian, which is actually to me much more exciting and refreshing because then it's just honesty. You know, it's like I don't really, you know, it's here a lot of times it's like everybody's a Christian. You think, oh, man, what does that mean? Well, you know, I did this or did I went to church when I was a kid. You know, there's no alignment with Christ, submission to him, walking in him. You know, it's just I'm I'm everybody's a Christian kind of. Well, the thing is, is, is it's very I think it's very important that we understand it because we're saying, what does it mean to enter into fellowship with Christ? What does it mean to know him? It means to rely on him, trust in him, submit to him. faith involves an, a change of allegiance Faith is a its a total transformation. It is a change of allegiance. I am aligning myself with Christ. His purposes, His desires, His goals, His church, everything. I am aligning myself with that. I have trusted in Him. I am walking with Him. So we need to understand that and grasp it. Now let's move forward to verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, we are playing on the same team. We're walking in the light, not in darkness. You could think about the whole world as as, as a football team, and two teams out there, and you're saying those who are in Christ are on one team. Not that we're fighting or warring against the world. Sometimes people think, oh, yeah, we, well, our goal is to like beat the world down or like, overcome the world in the sense of, Telling them how, you know, horrible they are, whatever. We take the gospel of light, but we're not. So we're not fighting in that way. We're just saying there are two distinct people. There are those who are in Christ, those who are outside of Christ. And when we see that, we understand that we're saying when I come to Christ, I'm aligning myself with him. I've left the old team and I'm entering into it on a new team, running after a new goal. I have a new coach. I have new desires, I have a new focus, I have somebody I'm running with. All those things are very clear. It says here, we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in light, we have fellowship with one another. That's very important that we understand that. We grasp that. We are we are there is an intimacy that's that sometimes hard for us to do because we are close to our families and we love our families or whatever. There is an intimacy with believing people that transcends your blood relatives. There's a fellowship there. There's a union there. There's there's a depth of relationship that's hard to comprehend in our fallen condition. It's Often very hard for us. I think it's just we see this. We see this moving forward. And it says here, and it's, I think it's important that we understand this. Um, some people would read this passage. Look at verse 7 one more time. If we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you say walking in the light is living a perfectly holy life. If you said that, which some people might say that, then the question is for me is like, then why do you need the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from all sin? You know, very, that's a big question for me. I see walking in the light as embracing him. As is is embracing the light of life, the truth, the eternal life, Christ, it's embracing him and in embracing him as our only hope and submitting to him and yielding to him. We understand that we have fellowship with those who do the same and that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin because he is the only hope for salvation for all of us. So we keep moving. Verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I asked him as a study guide this week. Like, you ever met anybody that doesn't have any that said they're like sinless? I mean, there are people out there that kind of think that they've gotten to this place. I I have a friend that's in a small group like uh, at his church, and uh, he said they like their first time to meet as a small group thing. The leader said, "Where do you think you are on a scale of one to ten spiritually right now?" And so they're going down through there, and people are saying like three four you know six maybe you know and five or whatever they're kind of down on that lower level of it and they get this guy and he's like i'm a 10 and he wasn't joking and my friend said my mouth like dropped like a 10 like we've met jesus you know like everybody's here it's like this perfect person has showed up to our small group you know and uh, i think it's important that we understand um And and that's one of the things I guess I would say about this church is like every week we have a confession of sin corporately and privately because we're saying there's still sin here. There's still a lot of sinners here that we're still struggling with sin. We're not the self-righteous church that never struggles, think we're better than everybody else, smarter than everybody else, have everything together like nobody else. Everybody should listen to us because we got it. We're not that. We're saying this church is filled with sinners. And it's it's a place where we struggle with sin. Really, honestly, if you stop struggling with sin and get on that higher plane, you'll probably need to leave here because we'll like try to go after your heart. Say, ooh, look at that sin. Look at that sin. Look at that. sin! I think it's important that we see that we understand that. Because we are sinners, we struggle with sin. He says here. If we we we've deceived ourselves if we don't think we have. See that's what Jeremiah said the heart is deceptive, the heart like, that's why people that are proud and arrogant tell everybody what the way it is, snooty kind of about it. When you see that and it's almost like disgusting you can't believe the pride just flowing out and you're just like wow can you believe that? It's because they don't they're deceived. they're deceived. A lot of times, those people that do that don't look in the Word very often. They they really don't sit before the Word in humility because when the mirror shows up of the Word and you stand before it, you say you're shocked by it. It, it would cause someone when we really see and God reveals the sin in our hearts, it causes you to say, "Woe is me." It just does, a sinner. I'm broken before God. I don't look at people and go, oh, look at that sinner. Look. I'm going, I've looked in the mirror today. How could I do that and punish people with my tongue when I'm such a wretched sinner? I've got to see myself. Whenever I get on my high horse and I'll be like, you looked in the mirror lately? No, she doesn't say it just like that. That's kind of what she's saying. Looked in the mirror lately. You really? That's one of the greatest things about a wife who loves the Lord. You looked in the mirror lately. It's Just so helpful to have a stop and see when we start deceiving ourselves with our condition. Some people say this is kind of this form of Gnosticism coming up, this thought that sin was like matter and, and the flesh is kind of this thing of like. You could sin in the body, but then in your spirit, you could still be right with God. There's kind of this division that was taking place. So some may even think like there's kind of this idea that maybe someone thinks that they uh, uh, maybe are on the spiritual plane up here. And then down on the ground, it's OK for me to be really sinful because I'm up here with God. But either way, we say this is crazy to think this. Verse nine, we keep moving forward. We see we are not to deny our sin, but to admit it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must own up to it. It's okay here to own up to your sin because we know everybody's a sinner. It's okay. Say, I'm I'm saying like, yeah, I know you are. I am too. Just own it. He's saying you have to own that. You have to see that. That's really the first step for someone. That's why, like, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you start with God. God. Say, God is holy, you are a sinner, Christ is the Savior, you must respond in repentance and faith, admitting your sin and trusting in Christ. That's why we lay it out that way. Because we're just saying you gotta start with like a need. You're broken. You're you're in a bad place. So I think it's important that we see that and we just kind of, as you're moving forward, I, I think it's important for us to just kind of say, okay, well, what is sin? Sin can be described sometimes as, as, and I I heard, uh, I think my dad was talking about this this morning, like missing the mark. And and that's how it's often described in scripture. It's like lifting up your gun and you're pointing and you you fire and you you think that you're going to hit the target and you miss it altogether because your your focus is off or whatever you want to say. You miss the mark. And uh, I remember a few years ago, I missed a really big bug. It still haunts me. I mean, like. This time of year, hunting season's coming up and it's like, I have a photo of him. I took of him before I even pulled the gun up because I was going to let him go. And then I looked at him. and I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, I can't And pull my gun up and like fire. And I'd bump my gun some days earlier. And so it was off. Miss the deer. That's what I like to claim. I might have been shaken, you know, but but still, like when we're thinking about that, that's kind of the idea of sin. It's missing the mark. God has this perfect mark that we're to go and we go off of that. We miss it completely. Sin is also um, presented in another way in Scripture. It has the idea of um, iniquity or wickedness, and sometimes it has the idea of just being bent, like it's it's bent, it's 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 turned, it's bent in such a way that it, the use of it has been broken. So you might say. For instance, we mentioned earlier, like sex. We would say sex is designed by God for the good of humanity and for the blessing of a married couple and all kinds of stuff. But people do what? They twist it and turn it and turn it into all kinds of grievous, horrible, sinful things. So it's it's kind of one of those things where we say sin is, is not living, is not 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 using those things that God has given in a way that would be honoring to Him. It, it's breaking that or or bending that, uh, making it useless. So we just kind of I think it's important that we see that we understand what sin is. Sin is anything and another way I've heard it described as anything um, not done to the glory of God. Uh, you might even say to the glory of God and the good of others, anything that we do not do, we don't do from a heart of faith to the glory of God or saying I'm offering this to God in faith. Sometimes I think for, sin, for us, sin, our sins are really small. And so we might look at them and say, oh, it's like a little molehill in our eyes. And we're like, well, I've got some sin there. But it's like a little, you know, Charles Spurgeon said, no, it's like mountains. It's, it's, it's mountains in God's eyes. So I see it as a small thing. It's like a mountain in his eyes. And I think that's important that we understand that because we don't always see our sin as it really is. What we see here is that when we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One person said he's faithful to forgive because he has promised us to do so and just because his son died for our sins. He's not just passing over them as if they didn't exist. That's what I do. I walk past my sin and I think, oh, it's forgotten, right? Because I forgot about it. God doesn't forget about it. God dealt with it. He dealt with it through his son dying on the cross for us. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse that says, We claim to be without sin. Here we claim that we have not sinned and that God is a liar. God says over and over the truth, over and over, that sin universally affects all of humanity and they've rejected this truth. That all are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Now let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. John's going to speak directly to the Christian in like a fatherly tone. He says, my little children. That's why my little children, when he's speaking like that, he's speaking to them as if they are believers. You know, he's writing to a believing people. Sometimes people think, oh, he's just writing to, This mixed community of unbelieving. I think he's writing to people. He's saying, I believe you're believers, my little children. He's speaking to them in a very kind and tender way. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He wants them to desperately fight against their sin. He does not want them to sin by rejecting Jesus, their light and life. He wants them to walk in faith, trusting Jesus as their only hope for salvation in the present and future. He wants them to live a life of holiness and to regularly turn away from their sin and live a life of righteousness. And we should want that. We should treasure that. We should treasure Christ above all and seek to honor and glorify him in all that we do. We want to be overwhelmed with joy as we think about what he's done for us and seek to live in a way that would honor him. We should not be afraid to admit our sin because Jesus, notice here, is our advocate. Now, if you're, um, uh, you know, different people like look at this. Some people say, well, this is like an advocate here is like a friend that is um uh, uh, showing up, maybe that someone is in the courtroom, and so the friend shows up and says, I stand in their place. Uh, other people would translate this, an advocate as an attorney, almost standing there, uh, advocating on your behalf, standing in your place. He, he, I think I lean more towards the attorney picture because I see it like that. It's like, it, don't be afraid to say you're a sinner because it's been dealt with. Don't be afraid to confess your sins because because you're confessing your sins and and revealing that you're a sinner, but then you also can hope in Christ because He is our advocate. He is standing there in our place. He's like this attorney who represents us. He stands there before the judge of the universe. He stands there as the righteous one in the place of the unrighteous. It goes beyond that. Because he's not only standing in our place, he is standing there as the one who's already paid the penalty for our sins. This is a powerful picture for us. It's almost as if he says, Father, you know that my righteousness has been put to their account and their sinfulness to mine. Remember, I took the penalty that they deserve. The judgment fell on me. The guilty verdict was placed upon me. And I bore their punishment so that they could be declared right in the courtroom of justice. It's a beautiful thing to see that when you think about that for a moment, does that make you want to stop sinning? That's what Romans 2 says, the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance. Why? Because when I really see what he's done and when, when I see the kindness of the Lord shown towards me, then I want to walk in a way that would bring honor and glory to him. The picture here is not of the fear of being lost It's not that picture. We are not afraid that we will be forgotten or lost. We do not fear that we'll be condemned. We have an advocate that is there in our place. He he is a willing advocate. He is standing there willingly. Some people have been taught that when they stand before the throne, that if they've sinned before they died, that they will be standing alone alone. Some people are taught that you will not if you are in Christ and you've come for my repentance and faith, you have come to trust in him. You will not stand alone at the judgment. You will stand there with an advocate who he alone is able to rescue you. You will not stand there with some goods and say, here's the good works I did. Is this enough? It will not be that. Only hope for us is that Jesus was enough and he was. Verse two, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is very, this is a really helpful quote for me. You ready? Jesus does not plead our innocence before the throne above. He acknowledges our guilt and presents his work on our behalf as the grounds for acquittal. That That is shocking. He does not he does not stand there and say just pass over. He does not say, oh, those are all innocent people. He says the guilty have been pardoned because of what I've done for them. What a powerful thing. And what is propitiation? We don't use that term all the time. One guy described it this way. It is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God. Through the gift of God. The initiative is not taken by us. Nor even by Christ. But by God himself. In sheer unmerited love. His wrath is averted. Not by any external gift. But by his own self giving. To die the death of sinners. This is the means. That he has designed. To turn his own wrath away. What a beautiful thing. To know. I want to read a hymn that we sing sometimes before we conclude today, and this will be our conclusion. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God. The just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable. I am the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful today for our hope. Our hope. Is in. the Living Savior. Who is the eternal God who became flesh. Who dwelt among us. Who went to the cross and bore our guilt and shame. So that we might be reconciled. Brought into fellowship with you. We ask that we would be reminded of that. When we think about our sins so that we can be honest about it. So that we can know that it's been dealt with. So that we can be encouraged and challenged to move forward. By your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen.